When I was growing up, I used to love going to my grandmother's place at Geelong. It was always a great joy to go to my parents because we, it was special. It was something different. And what we really enjoyed about going to my grandmother's and what we always pestered my grandmother about was that she would cook our favourite dish. There was one dish that she made that we just went, this means we're grandmas and we loved it. And it was the way she made macaroni. My grandmother made macaroni in a way that you wouldn't imagine. It was just amazing. I don't think anybody makes uh, macaroni like my grandmother did. But every time we had it, it tasted fantastic. And we would pester her while we are on the holiday for it, my brother and I. We'd go, oh, where do we have a macaroni, Grandma? And then she would cook it. And she would spend hours on the day cooking it. And it was awesome. And we always said to her, you know what, Uma? No one makes macaroni like you do. My mum, your daughter, but I never knew, said this to her, your daughter, our mum, she can't make macaroni as good as yours. Yours is the best macaroni in the world. And for my brother and I, we really believed it. It was so yummy. It was our favourite thing. And it became such a tradition at Umar's place that that would be the day when we got there, when are you making macaroni, Umar? Your macaroni is the best, the best that you can have. It got to the point that if we went and we stayed at her house, if she didn't cook it, what was the point of going to Grandma's house? And she lived at Geelong, 10 hours drive away but if she wasn't going to cook the macaroni well then why would you go the thing that made her macaroni so good and the reason that no one else could rise to her level was it wasn't that she spent hours she did spend hours cooking it it was the love she put into it she desired to make it just that good because she loved us so much. And it doesn't matter how many times other people tried to cook it, they couldn't represent it the same way. They couldn't be faithful to my grandmother's macaroni. Yes, it looked like the macaroni. Yes, it smelled like it. But it wasn't the same. Today we're looking at a passage and what we're really going to consider is faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful? And what we're going to see as we look at today's passage is that the key ingredient that we need is love. That as we strive towards faithfulness, like my grandmother's macaroni, who worked so hard to faithfully produce this meal each and every time for us, that her, her love for us resulted in faithfulness, resulted in a faithfulness to the meal that no one else could replicate, that no one else could change or make any as well as my grandmother. Now, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount and as we've seen over the first few weeks, we saw that we are the blessed ones. We are blessed when we are persecuted, when we are different in the world. That was what we first saw where Joe spoke. And last week we saw how David was saying that our 
righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees, that we are to go above and beyond, that we are to fulfill the law in a deeper and more meaningful way. And today we look at two further examples of how the law requires us or how what Jesus is requiring us is to fulfill the law in a deeper and more meaningful way. And as we come to this passage, there is going to be some hard words said here. It is some tough things that Jesus has to say to us and has to say to a culture such as ours that is living so contrary to what Jesus has to say. And as we listen to the Bible and as we come to passages like this, especially topics that deal with very emotional and personal topics, we need to be able to listen and not react straight away. Because today we're dealing with Bible, uh, with marriage and with sex and what God has to say about these topics that are very personal to a lot of us. And for this reason, we need to be slow to react. We need to be quick to listen. Because what we want to do if we want to be faithful, if we want to grow in our faithfulness, is that we need to be very, very slow to react, especially when the passage can touch emotions and feelings deep down. When we hear of topics that make us feel uncomfortable or if we feel like we've done something wrong, it is our natural reaction to want to defend ourselves, to want to pull back. I remember when I was first starting out in ministry and I went over to this couple's place and I was dealing with a tough passage and this particular couple were going through sickness at the time and we came to the book of James and the book of James said, if you are sick, ask for the elders to come and pray for you that you might be healed. And what the passage is forcing people to do if they're sick is to have a reflection upon their lives and to think about if the sickness has anything to do with sin. And what this couple had heard me say, even though I went to great lengths to avoid this, was that I was saying their sickness was due to some sin. Even though I had said multiple times on the night, this is not saying that you are sinful because you are sick. It is simply saying that when we are sick, we should think through whether there's some sin in our lives. And it didn't matter how many times I had said that. They had heard me say to them, the reason you're sick is because you're sinful. When we come to difficult passages, which can really cause us to question ourselves. We need to remember, and you need to remember about what I am saying. I don't know every aspect of your lives. I don't know what you're going through. I do not know all the issues. My goal here is to teach God's word and teach it as faithfully and as clearly as I possibly can because I'm here to teach God's word because I love you. And I want to see you grow 
in faithfulness. And if you feel something or if you feel like you're being judged or under harsh treatment, first reaction need to be stop, listen, and then come and question us and question me. But realise I'm here for you and my goal is to see you grow in your faithfulness towards Christ. So, as we begin the passage and what we see Jesus say, he opens with what he talks about in terms of sexual faithfulness on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now this command comes from the Ten Commandments and those commandments were given to Israel and Mount Sinai. Now the Israelites hearing this wouldn't have really had at this time that Jesus is speaking it, wouldn't have had really too many problems with what he is saying. But then comes the statement, that would have floored them, that any man looking at a woman with the idea of sleeping with her, he's already committed adultery. Here Jesus points to the real issue and the real heart of the law. See, Jesus and what God is commanding us through the Ten Commandments and through Jesus is, do not commit adultery. And we're like, yeah, okay, we shouldn't sleep around. But then Jesus goes even further. If your heart, if you look at a woman and your heart is lusting after her with the idea of sleeping with her, well, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And I must admit, as I read this passage, my initial thought was to think, Oh, have I done this? Am I guilty of this? I don't want to commit adultery. I want to avoid that. I don't want to disappoint. I don't want to let people down. And I think a lot of us are like this. Our first initial reaction is to seek to justify ourselves. Oh, this doesn't refer to me. I'm a good person. I don't look lustfully. And it gets to the real issue that is that struggle that we all struggle with. This desire to justify ourselves, this desire to see that we are in the right. But when we do that, we run the risk of falling short of what Jesus is asking us to do. So here Jesus makes it clear that the act of adultery is not purely or not simply a physical act. It certainly is that. But the real issue is the issue of the heart. It's the issue of that the heart is chasing after and lusting after things that it should not have, especially in the areas of sexual immorality. Now, I need to make a distinction here. And it's a distinction that relies on us to be honest with ourselves. What Jesus is not saying is that if you look at a woman and acknowledge her beauty, 
that you are lusting after her. It's not wrong to see a woman on the street and go, oh, she's, she's pretty. Or for a man, if you're a woman looking at a man, to think, oh, he's handsome. I've certainly looked at plenty of men and thought, oh, they're handsome men. And there was no sexual connotations in recognising that. You know, as I walk through the supermarket and I pass a woman, I can think, ah, oh, she's, she's a pretty woman and not be lusting after her. But here's the question. When does looking at a person and acknowledging that they're pretty or beautiful move from acknowledging what you believe to be the case, that a woman or a man is handsome or beautiful, when does that move from that just acknowledgement into lust? Generally speaking, it is the second look. And here is where we are required to be honest with ourselves. And when we redo that honest look, we know when we're moving towards lust. We know in our hearts when we've gone, oh yeah, she's handsome or she's pretty or he's handsome and she's pretty too. Oh, she's handsome. Oh, she's pretty. Here's a case in point. I like to read people's shirts. I like to read what they put on their shirts. Something that I quite often do. And I read lots of people's shirts because I like to know what they're thinking. I like to know, well, why have you put that on your shirt? Why do you think it's so important that you say that to the world? And you see a lot of these shirts and most time, most of the people, there's, there's nothing that, that ever make you think of sexual connotations. But there are some women who have big, particularly big busts that they have something plastered on their shirt. And my natural proclivity is just to read the shirt. But then sometimes they're a bit hard to read. Here's the question. When is trying to read the shirt move from uh, innocent look and trying to understand what a person is saying to, oh, I would really be interested in seeing bust, where I'm not looking at the shirt anymore to see, read it, but I'm interested in what she looks like. I'm interested in her figure. To think through what we are doing and why we are doing it requires a real honesty within ourselves. We can come up with many reasons and many justifications for doing the things that we do. And we can tell the world whatever we think and they will never know. But the person who does know is you and God. So you can lie to the world. You can lie to your ministers. You can lie even to your spouse. But the two people you cannot lie and get away with it is God and yourself. And that's the honesty that is required when dealing with this type of passage. What is really going on in here? What is really going on in my heart? When have I gone from thinking, hmm, she's pretty, to thinking, hmm, 
She's pretty. Same words. Two completely different intentions. of our own inner thought life requires real honesty. It takes a deep dive to look into yourself and say, yeah, this is really what I am doing. And we mustn't ignore the proclivity of our own hearts. We mustn't ignore that we are and have a tendency towards sinfulness. Because when we ignore that tendency, that is when we're really in danger. That is when the problems and of sin can really crop up and can get us. Our advertising industry is, whole, is wholly built on getting us and inflaming our desires and lusts. And especially in this area, it uses our sexual and our proclivity towards sexual sin, which sexual desire is a good thing in its right place, but because we are so often and so easily led astray, our whole advertising industry uses that stuff that we don't need. Because the truth of it, is this, that we can fall into temptation and into sin, just that the movement from, hmm, she's pretty, to hmm, she's pretty, is fast and quicker than most of us realise. And so Jesus says, we need to remove those things out of our life that will tempt us towards those sins. He wants us to be honest with ourselves. He wants us to deal and acknowledge the reality that's going on in here. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Sin is serious. Sin matters. We can so easily downplay our sin or we can relativise, oh, it's not that bad. It was only a little lie. It was only a little sin. Yeah, I cheated on my taxes this year. But I didn't kill my boss. He'd be happy to know that. Jesus' lines about sin, Jesus' words about sin, those words that we have to gouge out our body, cut off our hands, they're meant to reinforce just how serious sin is. That it is better to lose part of your body than sin against your creator. Do we believe that? Now, the reality is you, if you cut off your hand and gouge out your eye, 
it's not going to remove the proclivity of your sin. Because the real problem, it's here. It's that heart problem. It's that we are so easily tempted towards it. And that whatever deprivation we might have so as to get rid of sin, anything that we might lose in this life that will remove the temptation from sin away from us, it is worth it. It is valuable. For the end, making sure we reach the end, making sure we reach the goal of being with our Creator is worth the loss and worth loss in this world. When was the last time you got rid of something because of the temptation it was causing you? Have you removed a temptation recently? We all have times where we go, yeah, this might be causing me a problem. Remove it. Chuck it out. Get rid of it. Remember Jesus' word, take up your cross and follow me. When you join Jesus, when you become part of his people, you join the death march. You die to self. You die to your desires. You die to your passions. And you live for Christ. And that there is no other tougher and greater place to do that at this stage, at this time in in our culture than in the area of sexual purity. Our culture is screaming, have sex, enjoy yourself. You have every right. And God is saying, no, remain faithful. Be faithful. And if there's a temptation, get rid of it. Cut it out. I remember this year, just when all this virus stuff began, and we needed to start to put videos together. And so Trudy was starting to do some kids' talks, and she asked me, and she said to me, oh, could you get a video of Colin Buchanan so you can put it on for the kids? Place it on the video for the kids' talks. And I said, sure, yeah, it won't be a problem. So I went onto my computer, and the software that I used to download the files uh, wasn't working. So I had to go onto the internet and try and find an internet uh, site that could take the YouTube address and and download the file so that we could have the kids could have Colin Buchanan. So I did this and I found a site and as I was looking at the site and using the site, what came up were just advertisement after advertisement for porn. It was just porn this, porn and I'm just like, oh go away. And it's I'm just thinking, I just want to download this Colin Buchanan, you know, he died upon the cross. And there's porn videos sitting there. And it was just surreal. And I'm like, just go away. And eventually got the video and put the put the kids' talks video together. A few days later, an email message. And some guy had written anonymously. He said, I know what you did. And you know what you did. 
you need to give me a thousand dollars or otherwise I'm telling everybody what you did. Now I knew where it had come from. It was some sort of uh, internet robot had picked up my address and managed to get my details and was now sending me a uh, scam because I'd seen all these advertisements for porn sites as I'm downloading Colin Buchanan. And so I just said, oh, I'm going to ignore that. And I just did. But what it reminded me of, and this is why I bring it up, is just how insidious this stuff is. Just how quickly we can be trapped by our own desires and our own lusts. To say I wasn't feeling any temptation as though all those porn sites popped up would be a lie. But because I recognised that and knew what was going on, I was like, yeah, I can recognise and see the temptation I'm feeling. I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to suppress that and get Colin's video. And I did. And I'm glad I did. And I'm glad I told Trudy about what had happened. So when she saw my email, she said, oh, Adam, don't worry about it. I know what had happened. Yeah, she she knew what had happened because I told her. Because I was open with her honest about what was going on when we're looking at the internet when we're looking at what we're doing especially online in this day and age we need to acknowledge that proclivity we need to acknowledge that temptation that we all have it really does matter because if we don't we can run into real problems And as we do that, as we think through that, as we consume more and more of the internet, especially as this coronavirus comes on, we've got to be careful that we don't try and run into little justifications. That if we are struggling with an issue or we're struggling with a temptation, that we don't be silent about it. That we tell people. That they, we let people know of the struggles we can have. Because if we don't, we will run into and be trapped by those temptations. If we don't think about how we can look after ourselves, and I'm talking to you guys especially at this point, if we don't think and look at, talk about how the internet can sometimes trap us, how we need to think about we can remove or cut out those areas in life, whether it be by accountability software or whatever, you talk to an accountability partner. If you are struggling with internet pornography, men, do something about it. Don't go silent. Yes, there can be a great deal of shame and we can feel bad because we're trapped, but far better to tell somebody and talk to somebody about it. We're here for you. We love you. We want to see you grow in your faithfulness towards God. And ladies, do not think you're immune to this. Men's brains are wired to be more visual. That is for sure. That is why they find pornography, and men find, generally find pornography more enticing. But that does not mean, and I have read of situations where women have been enticed into pornography. 
Don't think you're immune from it because you're not a man. Pornography is dangerous for everybody. But when it comes to women, you have another form of pornography that is just as dangerous and just as insidious. Because women's minds, generally speaking, not all the way in in each each and every way, but women's minds are generally trend towards relationships and being more relational. And so there is material catered to you and catered to enticing you into sexual immorality. Fifty Shades of Grey wasn't written for men. It was written for women. It was enticing women to find titillation, there's no other word for it, in power, in sex, in billionaires and strong men. Yes, it was a different level of stimulation, but it is just the same idea. Here's a relationship that will fulfill your every desire. Here's a relationship that will make you feel secure and loved and desired. Here's a relationship from a man who is powerful and wealthy who thinks you're valuable. Enjoy it. It is enticing. And you might say, oh, it's just a bit of escapism. It's it's not real. I don't believe it. What do you think pornography is? Oh, she's just beautiful. She's just young. It's just a bit of escapism. It's not real. It doesn't matter. When we are enticed into these types of temptations, when we are enticed into believing, wanting these relationships, as illicit as they are, we are being enticed to be unfaithful. And Jesus' whole point is, be faithful to the person you have married. Be sexually faithful. Do not delude yourselves. Do not hide from it. Do not hide what's going in your heart. But be honest about it. At the end of the day, I can't judge you. I don't know what's going on in your hearts. Neither does Joe or Dave. But I can say the three of us are here for you. We love you. We care for you. We want you to be honest. And if you're struggling in these areas, come and tell us. And we're here not to judge you or condemn you, but to encourage you and see you grow in your faithfulness towards God. And beware the little justifications, because that's where Jesus goes next. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, before I go on, we need to prepare our hearts. We need to have a serious look at ourselves. And certainly, if you've been divorced and remarried, 
The temptation here will be, oh, it was okay, what I do, I have right reasons and it was, you know, it would be okay. And I want you just to squash that temptation for just a second because what Jesus says here is about from where we are, how do we become more faithful in the situation we placed us? And if we just keep on trying to justify past wrongs, whether they're true or not, what we'll end up doing is falling back in the same patterns of behaviour that led to the problems in the first place. As we look at this section, we need to remember that Jesus is talking to the Jews and they'd gotten into a bad habit of doing something. Then they'd gotten into the bad habit of divorcing and remarrying on a whim. And we can read more about it, and you can read more about it in Matthew, in chapter 19. But simply this, the Pharisees kept on saying, well, I want to marry her, but I'm married to this woman first, so what I'll do is I'll give her a certificate of divorce and then I'll run over and get remarried. I'll just remarry her. And that will mean I'm okay because I've done what the law said. I've fulfilled the requirements as God had said back in the old, ter- uh, back in the old, to- old testament. And what had happened and what had been created by this was a culture of easy divorce and remarriage. You know, if I just sick of my wife or, you know, she's just displeased me, really because I want to trade her up for a new young thing, I'll write her a certificate, she goes away, and Bob's your uncle, God's happy with me, I've done the right thing and I've fulfilled the law. And this infuriated God. I'm going to read from Malachi. And this is what God says to Israel in Malachi. And this is in uh, chapter 2. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them one portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourself carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourself carefully and do not act treacherously. See, God is saying what you're doing is totally disgusting and evil. You're getting married. When you're getting older, you're going, oh, I've had enough of her. I'll get and marry the new young thing. And it was just a culture of easy divorce, easy remarriage, and they're ticking all the boxes and they're just making God angry. He says, 
you are covering your garment with injustice. You are doing the wrong thing. We live in a culture enslaved to its own passions, emotions and desires. That's the culture we live in. It has given itself over to that. And in terms or in terms of divorce and remarriage, our culture has become totally polygamous. And what do I mean by that? Not that every time they're in a marriage that they have multiple sex partners, though some do. It's just that they move from one marriage to another marriage to another marriage to another marriage. They're polygamous because they have multiple marriages in their lives. They just, whenever this is too hard or this is too tough, gone, start again. And the statistics back this up. We've moved to a culture where 50% of marriages, or we've moved to a time in our culture where 50% of marriages do not make it to the end. 50% will break up over their lifetime. And it is polygamy, because it is, as I said, multiple marriage. might be one at a time. They might be faithful in their marriage that they But it's multiple. It's one after the other after the other. And what our culture has done in doing this is it has just become like the Pharisees. Well, when I'm tired of her, I'll just get rid of her and get something new. We are not here to condemn you. We are not here because we hate you. We're not saying these things because we don't love you. We're saying these things because we want you and we want the best for you in your lives. What Jesus is saying here is really hard for some of us to hear, but I think it's hard for all of us to hear, if we're going to be honest, if we're going to look into our hearts and acknowledge what's going on. We all have this proclivity to do the wrong thing, to move away, to be unfaithful. If you're divorced and remarried, you'll be thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or you might be thinking you shouldn't have done that. What has gone in the past is done. What you need to do and what you, I hope you'll want to do is to remain faithful in the marriage where you are. That is far more important at this point. And again, the statistics show this. 50% of divorced couples that get divorced and remarried, 70% of the remarriages fail too. Why is that the case? And here's why I think it's going on. When we fall into these little justifications... When we say, oh, I can understand why it was, it was okay for me. That's when we run into problems because we don't deal with the issues that led to the, the breakup of the relationship in the first place. A justification for sin is a prelude to future sin. Let me say that again. A justification of a past sin is a prelude to continue or move into a future sin. Unless we deal with the reality that is going on here, 
unless we deal with the reality that's in our hearts, we will not be faithful because we will not change. We won't deal with the problems we all have. And we all have them. We all have our struggles. We all have our issues, especially in the areas of marriage. And what God is saying here is, be honest. Deal with what's going on here. Seek help. If it's a struggle, let someone know. Don't suffer in silence. Think, oh, church is about me marriage and uh, about marriage and so I've got to show that my marriage is perfect. Let me tell you, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. They all have struggles. They all have issues. They all have to deal with personal problems. But if those personal problems have gotten to the point where it's really putting your marriage in jeopardy, reach out. Don't suffer in silence. We are here for you. We love you and we care for you. And what we want to see for you and what we have in mind for you is we want the best. We want to see your faithfulness towards God grow and we want to see the faithfulness in your marriage grow because, as God says, he wants faithfulness to reign in the land. And for that faithfulness to reign in the land, we need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves. And that's hard. Which really leads to the last section. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Jesus is just continuing his idea of faithfulness. He's gone through the idea of faithfulness in marriage and now he's moving to the idea of faithfulness with our partners, uh, with those, our neighbours who we're in relationship with. And Jesus here is, as he quotes, you must not break your oath, he's not quoting a specific Old Testament passage, but he is quoting an idea that comes up again and again and again in the Old Testament law. Uh, for, for instance, this is just Leviticus 19.12. Do not swear falsely by my name, profaning, profaning the name of your God, I am the Lord. Well, Numbers 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word, he must do whatever he has promised. This idea of making oaths is common to the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying here is don't make oaths uh, or don't make promises. He's not saying that. What he's saying here is don't use some sort of higher power or some sort of sacred object or something that is you think is really important to make your promise sound stronger. 
Make your yes, your yes, and your no, your no. You need to remember what was going on again in the Old Testament. See, what Jesus is saying to the to the Jews is simply this, and what they were doing is simply saying, well, I'm going to make a promise and I swear to God by the altar that I will keep my word. And someone, they'd break their word and they said, well, I swear to God by the altar, but I really should have, sw- I, it didn't really matter because the altar really isn't that important. I swear by God, but I can, I can nitpick. I can justify my way out of my words. And that's really what Jesus is attacking. This idea that we can use little we, what I would say, weasel words and nitpicking ideas to get out of what we said. And we see it all the time. What's a contemporary uh, form of this? And you'll all know this one. It's called terms and conditions. Who hasn't read terms and conditions? And I've read quite a few of them. And as you read the terms and conditions after for an hour and a half, what you will find is simply this. This seems to be the case of every term and condition I write. We're not responsible whatever happens, even when it's our fault. And that's what a lot of these terms and conditions... And you get to the point where you just like me, you just end up a cynic. I'll just tick yes, I'll just sign it away, because I know what they're saying. They're basically just saying they're not going to take any responsibility even when they're at fault. And which is just another way of saying, I don't have to be held responsible for my words. And I know why they do it. I know our society's proclivity to uh, litigate at a moment's notice. And that is on us a bit. But the reality is you just get sick of it. And what Jesus here is saying, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Make your yes your yes. Your word is your bond. If you say something, do it. If you've promised something and you didn't do it, don't make up excuses. Say, sorry, I said I'd do it, I haven't. How can I help you? Do not get into this silly idea of trying to justify your way out of promises you have made. It is infuriating. Be people who are faithful. What's the point of the passage? Be people who are faithful. And when we are honest, when we acknowledge what's going on in our hearts, We'll acknowledge that we're not faithful all the time. But when we acknowledge that prickly, we acknowledge the truth of ourselves, then we open up the door for our righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees because we'll fix things in our life. We'll ask for help. We'll seek help from God. We'll seek help from those who us. This passage isn't saying be perfect. It's acknowledging that we're not. And it's that acknowledgement that we don't get it right. That we don't live up to the standards that God has set. That allows us to move towards it. Because if we 
as I said before, if we justify our past sin, we cannot move beyond it because we're right where we are. My grandmother's macaroni was awesome. Nobody could reach her faithfulness in producing the taste of that macaroni. And the reason is because she loved us. She loved us with that greater intensity. It is that love for each other and our love for God that will drive us to be faithful. And in that drive to be faithful, we will live for the glory of God. And then the others around us will see as the Sermon on the Mount that we are a light on the hill, that we are salt on the earth. Let's pray that we will work and drive towards the faithfulness that God wants from us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for Jesus. We do thank you for who he is. We thank you that he died to forgive us our sins. As we look at this passage, Father, which really deals with some difficult issues, help us not to seek to defend or justify our sinfulness. Help us to be honest with our own hearts, honest in what's going on inside us. Help us to be loving and gracious with those around us. And if we're struggling with sin, Father, help us to remove those temptations from our lives. And if we are struggling to do that, help us to reach out, to not be ashamed of our sinfulness, but to seek help so that we could grow in greater and greater faithfulness to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.